0: And what I realized is I needed to clean up my delivery, not how I felt, not my opinions, not my beliefs, not my stances. So what that sounded like was communicating with her and saying, hey, listen, I still feel very strongly about what we discussed yesterday. My opinion hasn't changed. However, I should have never spoken to you in that manner to be really clear about what was my responsibility and what was not. And for that reason, I'm very, very sorry. But that took so many, so many instances of cleaning up my mess and realizing that all we really want, truly all of us just want to be heard.
1: Hey there, I'm Renee, a self-proclaimed shopaholic turned minimalist. In just three years, my family and I downsized our house, paid off debt, and I learned to make passive income online so I could work anytime, anywhere. We did all of this in pursuit of a life of more freedom, flexibility, and fun. And the crazy part is, the more I detached from my stuff, the more I was able to let go of pesky habits like people-pleasing, saying yes to everyone, and being who I thought I was supposed to be rather than showing up authentically as who I am. That's why I want you to see the Unstuffed podcast, not as a place for all things decluttering and organizing, but rather as a place where together we can unload it all from donating those pants that no longer fit to bidding adieu to those relationships that have run their course. I want you to see our time together as a time where you can unwind, let go, come as you are. And there is no need to apologize for the mess. So let's shed some layers, drop some dead weight, and start living a little less stuffed. Welcome to the Unstuffed Podcast. Hey there, it's me, Renee. Welcome back to the Unstuffed Podcast. Today I got to sit down with Amy Greensmith and have an amazing heartfelt conversation with a few swear words thrown in here and there. As a recovering people pleaser herself, Amy and I had so many things to talk about. Her Instagram says it all, where she says, I teach chronic people pleasers and perfectionists how to speak up for themselves without being dicks. It's such a perfect example of our entire conversation that I can't wait for you guys to be a part of. Not only did Amy's people pleaser recovery journey start with the death of her dad, which is very similar to my own story. But she shares so many practical, soulful tools for speaking our boundaries and speaking up for ourselves. Like she says, without being a total dick, without being mean or unkind. And if you have ever struggled with, your parents or people in your life and trying to do everything to make them happy, and you're just so burnt out on trying, you don't know what to do, you don't know how to set the boundaries, or you're just fed up with all of it, this is a conversation you definitely want to be a part of. Hi, Amy. Hi, Renee. I'm so excited to hang out with you today. I'm so thankful that I get the chance to sit down and talk with you today. So right off the bat, do you want to kind of give my audience a little intro as to who you are, what you do um, and share with them if they haven't heard about you yet. Well, I
0: think like many folks who end up in kind of the expert space and I'm sure you can relate to this, a lot of the the work that we end up doing in the world is informed by our own healing and the things that we've had to experience and go through. And my, uh, my story is very much the same. So for a bit of context, I grew up in in a very, very conservative, evangelical, born-again Christian home. And I had a lot of love from my parents, for sure. But there was a very specific, like, rigid dogma instead of values that we were expected to abide by. And I, it, it was interesting because I have two younger siblings who, for all intents and purposes, I was kind of like the good kid. I started working when I was 14, sort of the the quintessential oldest kid, overachiever, that sort of thing, got married young, moved out of the house. And so, and my brothers both had, had really difficult time with the law and did jail time and things like that. So feeling like I was winning at daughter. And I used to take, when my husband and I would go visit my family, I would prep him and just say like, okay, no liberal agenda, no John Stewart, no cussing, no Howard Stern, no South Park, no drinking, no, you know, like, let's put up this veneer, right? Let's put up this facade so that we don't have to really show who we really are, or what we really believe. And everything really came to a head for me in 07 when my father passed away. And at the time I was a makeup artist. And so I knew very very surely. And I was incredibly convicted that I wanted to do his makeup for his viewing. And so, yes, everyone, that's dead dad makeup time. And, and then I also spoke to like a crowd of hundreds of people because he had quite a bit of influence in his life. So again, feeling like I'm winning at daughter, right? Like I'm, you know, dead dad makeup is kind of a big fucking deal, right? (laughs) Right. So, And not to mention that I'm also in the middle of my own throes of grief. And we get back home to my mom's house and she finds it the most opportune time to say that she feels that my father and her had failed as parents because the three of us, me and my siblings, were not, quote, walking with the Lord. So we were not subscribed to the faith traditions, but it didn't matter who we were in the world really at all, it was, you're only valuable if you subscribe to the same doctrine that, that we have brought you up with. And I'll tell you what, Renee, that was a big pivotal moment for me because the only thing I could kind of muster in that moment was to say, you probably shouldn't say that to a child. And she said, well, that's just how I feel. And that was sort of this moment when I went, okay, I'm at a choice here of where I can either choose to make her happy or make me happy. And I don't think that speaking up for yourself is always an ultimatum. In fact, I think a majority of the time it's not an ultimatum. But if push comes to shove and I have to decide between their happiness and mine, even if it's a parent, I'm going to choose me but let me tell you, shit hit the fan after that. Like I became combative, adversarial. I wanted to fight about everything. I think I also felt bolstered by the fact that my dad was gone. And so we could, it was like one one to one instead of one against two. <laughs> and, and it wasn't until many, many years later when I had cleaned up mess after mess of, of how I had spoken to my mom that I realized, oh, shit. You can actually speak up for yourself with grace and kindness. You can ask adult children to move out of your house with a deadline and do it with the utmost compassion. You can ask for a divorce. You can do all sorts of really difficult polarizing things and do it with grace and kindness, which has then informed the work that I do now, which is very much twofold The internal component of believing that your voice matters, that you're allowed to speak up for yourself. You're allowed to make decisions about your home and decluttering, not only in your home, but also in your relationships. There's a lot of decluttering that has to go on in that, or decluttering our belief systems too. (laughs) Getting get unstuffed that shit. So and then the external piece is then what are the semantics? How do I actually speak up? What does a boundary actually sound like? How do I say no without being racked with guilt? And and so that, that journey, that very difficult chapter of my life was really truly what helped me find my voice and then be able to share that with others as well.
1: That is so amazing. And I didn't know that about you. So I'm really glad to hear that side because I can relate on a deep level, which is something I don't talk about often, but... Yeah, uh, the components of being raised with these beliefs of who you have to be um, right. in a really strict setting. Uh, and it's funny, you know, I think I went through a similar thing. Like you said, you were trying to be the perfect daughter. You were trying to be everything that you thought you were supposed to be. I went through that same similar process um, mm-hmm. when I had the realization that I just wanted to downsize. And it was very much aligned with that, where I had tried to be everything I thought my husband could ever want. So. Right. Of course, in my my mind, that meant I was a size zero. I was teeny tiny. I was super pretty. My hair was done. I had the cute clothes. I took care of the kids. Everyone was fed, you know, like all the things. And yet he would still come home in a bad mood sometimes, which is okay. We're allowed to come home in bad moods, but I had seen it as a personal failure. And right. so I went through this realization, like I've done everything that I thought I needed to do to be perfect, quote unquote. Yeah. And it's, it's not working. So yes. I'm just going to stop because it's just really tiring trying. Yes. To, yeah. You know, and, I'm, I'm really
0: glad that you mentioned that because the beliefs that got you to the place where you felt like I need to be perfectly quaffed and the house needs to be Pinterest Pinterest perfect. and And there's a lot of pressure on disproportionately women to do all of the things. And it's exponentially worse if you're in any other marginalized identity. And I think one of the things that can be really helpful, and it sounds like sort of the epiphany that you had, is examining, have I given consent to the beliefs that I am operating with? And most of the time, it's no. You know, like if you were raised with a very specific belief system, whether or not it was religious or not, it's likely that you adopted those beliefs without your consent right like the idea that women must be thin that's yeah. a societal belief that we are indoctrinated with that we never gave our our consent to so i think it's important whatever you believe in and you did that amazing episode with that the gal talking about belief systems where she was working with you i thought that was so incredibly important because the deal with beliefs is they're just a feeling of certainty they're not necessarily fact and they're not necessarily true. So for example, I believe 100% that I am enough, that I'm valuable, that I'm capable of speaking up for myself, that I'm an amazing wife and friend and business owner, but there's nothing that's quantifiable, no stamp of approval that I can get from somebody that would say, okay, now you are officially enough. It's 100% a belief. If you have a belief in God or a belief in soulmates, what you're saying is, I feel certain that those things exist. Not necessarily that we have any fact or that it's necessarily true. That's why beliefs are so malleable. We can change them all the time. And I think that's really good news because then we can be very clear about what beliefs we're opting into.
1: Yeah. Oh, hundred percent. And that's, I've done so much work on mindset over the last few years, but I feel like I'm connecting more and more with people like you who yeah, that we can shift these beliefs, and you're absolutely right. Like, how many things have we agreed to in life um, without really actually believing them ourselves? Right. Um, yeah, and so that for me, the shedding, letting go of the stuff was kind of a physical way for me to let go of all the fake things that I had been carrying yes. around. So, yes. No, I was. I was just going to ask you. You talked about doing your dad's makeup. And how was that like a big transfer that was a big transformational moment for you, wasn't it? like was it was it that moment itself, or was it the moments after that you talked about?
0: You know, I was very at peace with his passing because, and this is very different than the experience with my siblings because I really didn't have any regrets. Like our relationship was in was so great. And he officiated. Uh, my wedding to my partner, and just a really beautiful connection. But both my brothers had such a... Well, first of all, they're, they're younger than me. And so we're in a much more tumultuous place in their life, finding their own footing, having difficulties. And so the way we chose to power through grief was very different. So I really was, what, what changed, what shifted for me, what was difficult is I was really into like the secret and, uh, law of attraction. It was like all the rage in the mid two thousands, right? Like, oh my gosh. So I'm thinking the night before he passes, I'm going to fucking manifest his life. (laughs) I'm, I'm just going to think it into existence and then, you know, have realized that that's not exactly how it works. But it was a good try. It was a good try. <laughs> so I went through a phase where I threw out all spirituality, religion, spirituality, law of attraction, all of that, where I was like, this is bullshit. And I was just angry and had to kind of find that. But I felt I had enough acumen in personal growth that I knew that it did no good to not plow headfirst into grief. One brother shut it down completely like you know those folks who you see like tales of the er and they're get like horribly impaled with something and they're like i didn't even feel it i and because the body numbs like crazy to that type of pain that can absolutely happen emotionally too where we choose to just shut it down nothing to see here um where we create a numbness to protect ourselves the other brother drank considerably and i just wailed my way through it I would be shopping at a grocery store, (laughs) buying stuff and being like, (laughs) here's my shopper's card. (laughs) You know, i pumping gas and I just didn't give a shit. And there was an element of that too that was letting go of people pleasing, of, oh, we can't see your emotion, right? Oh, we don't want to be with you in that place. And there's this really interesting gestation period and I know you've had loss in your life as well too. Um, I'm sure, I'm not sure if this was your experience or not, where people are like, we'll handle your grief for about two weeks and then we expect it to be business as usual. Now it is, let's get back to normal and we might not check in as much. So it's a very isolating process to go through. Um, but I think as far as what i am meant to do in this world and the messages i'm meant to impart that came largely from the interaction with my mom and and has has truly become a part of ironically it's such a religious word but my testimony you know in how i'm able to communicate and and also how our relationship has changed over the years too and how i how i've grown because it used to be <laughs> where I would talk to her and just unleash, you know, and be really awful. And so what I realized with that, and I'm hoping this is helpful for people listening, is that so often if we're, t- if we're caught in this people-pleasing cycle, we are so uncomfortable with being at odds with someone that they don't like me, they don't approve of me, they don't like my decisions. So we want, we take it back we get like this vulnerability hangover as Brene Brown talks about. And we go, oh my gosh, I, I we need to get back to homeostasis where we're all nice and friendly and happy. And so we take back all of our courageous vocal expression. And what I realized is I needed to clean up my delivery, not how I felt, not my opinions, not my beliefs, not my stances. So what that sounded like was communicating with her and saying, hey, listen, I still feel very strongly about what we discussed yesterday. My opinion hasn't changed. However, I should have never spoken to you in that manner. To be really clear about what was my responsibility and what was not. And for that reason, I'm very, very sorry. And um, I'm going to really work on not speaking to you in that way. But that took <laughs> like so many, so many instances of cleaning up my mess and and realizing that all what all we really want, truly, all of us just want to be heard, but we awesome. don't usually set ourselves up to be heard.
1: Yeah, you're so right. So, two things come to my mind as I'm listening to you talk. I think of I was thinking of I read Glennon Doyle's Untamed, yes. and in it, I think she talks about being that people pleasy, happy, you know, palatable version for everybody for so long that we kind of overcompensate and go into you know take back mode. Um, and I always, I always liked that she acknowledged that because I kind of feel like my whole life has been a lot of, um, ebb and flow and given, you know, you kind of have to refine that balance, but you kind of overcompensate or go too low or too high. Um, but also you talking about learning how to speak kindly to your mom is something that I've heard from so many people, uh, because that's something I've had to work out in my life, um, specific with my mom as well. Yeah. And something I hear from a lot of people is. How do you and I don't know if this is true for your mom, um, especially hear this from a lot of my girlfriends and things like that, that they don't want to apologize to someone who never apologized to them. A lot of times I hear people go, my mom has never apologized to me. My dad has never apologized. They never say they're wrong. Uh, And so did you feel like you have to say, I apologize for how I talk, even though you might not ever receive an apology back?
0: Yes. Oh my God. This is such a great, a great question. I have a mantra that I operate by, which is you are responsible for your intention, not your reception. What this means is you are responsible for how you behave, how you show up. But most of the time we go into interactions wildly attached to the reception. So we think, This will go well as long as mom sees it my way. This will go well as long as my partner feels the same way about downsizing. This will, right? We're looking for a very specific response for us to go, okay, I did it right. Instead of that barometer or that compass being outside of you, let's do something we can actually control because we cannot control the reception at all. If you've ever had somebody in your life who struggles with addiction, you know you can't love them into being clean or love them so much that they're sober. It has to be an internal decision. All we can do is show up in a way that we're proud of how we're behaving. And then we allow the reception to be whatever it is. They might surprise you and be amazing. That does happen. It does. (laughs) And that happens usually if you enter into the conversation with the same emotion you want to elicit in return. so And this is really, really difficult because it goes against all of our primitive defense mechanisms. But if you go into a conversation with vulnerability, you are far more likely to elicit that vulnerability in response. We have mirror neurons in the brain that are naturally going to want to mimic behavior, emotions that we see from others. We have emotional contagion where we catch an emotion, essentially, from someone else. And it's a survival tactic. It's a way that we are trying to connect with another person to stay alive, right? If we're talking about sort of the primitive origin. But I operate from that perspective because it's the one way that I know I can be successful in my mind, regardless of how I'm received, regardless if someone chooses to do their own work, own their shit. Most people, if you're elder millennial, Gen X, you've got boomer parents who probably aren't doing the work unless you have some utopian upbringing, <laughs> right? Gen X was the first one to be like, oh, what the hell is this? Let's actually work on stuff. Yeah. So I think acknowledging, okay, the reception is not my responsibility. However, the reception is going to carry an emotional response. So this is where emotional intelligence comes into play. It's sitting there knowing that you're per- you're, that person might make you wrong, they might say, "Well, yeah, you do owe me an apology because you do that shit all the time," or they might say, "Yeah, you're so dramatic and blah blah blah." I am, I don't share that opinion, and I wanted to just be very clear that I'm not at peace with how I showed up, and and I also am still not okay with the dynamic between us. Um, but it's important to me to own own where I'm at, and you and that doesn't mean you have to stay in a toxic environment. If someone's yelling at you, name calling you, belittling you, that's abuse. That's abuse. And that does not warrant thoughtful adult communication. So in those situations, you say, I'm happy to continue talking to you about this, but I will not allow you to speak to me in that manner. And if they do it again, again, you don't get the, what's difficult is getting caught in the trap. I call it the bait where they go, yeah, but you do this, or if you hadn't done. And so we get caught in the bait of defending ourselves instead of talking about the, the conversation container, like in this container is not suitable for us to be heard. All this is, is an abusive container. So you can't address the content coming from them. You have to address how it's being portrayed. So, again, I'm happy to hear this from you, but not if you hurl insults. If you can thoughtfully express to me in a respectful way what's been going on with you, I'm happy to respond. But I, again, I, and then, well, you just, oh, I just, we think you're doing all this because you listen to these podcasts and blah, blah, blah. Again, I'm happy to talk to you about this, but not if you're speaking to me like that. I'm going to need to leave. I'm going to hang up the phone so they can keep going with their bait. But you have to keep focus on: Is this container conducive for a thoughtful conversation? If it is not, then it's not the time to have it. It's not the time to advocate for yourself. It's not the time. It's the time to boundary up and move on. Like <laughs> we can revisit this later. Uh, but I think there is a huge piece around how much how that it emotionally hurts when your parent doesn't agree with you, or a partner, or a or a kid. And so we have to be comfortable in those uncomfortable emotions, recognizing this situation sucks, but I don't suck.
1: Yeah. I'm just sitting here reliving all my trauma. It's cool. <laughs> <laughs> You're, You're like welcome. Feeling everything, but, but but truly feeling the work that has gone into it. Um, because that's something that's so important for me to share with people is uh, I have done so much work and to stop taking the bait, like you say, uh, was one of the most difficult things, but to get to a point where I was comfortable enough walking away, like leaving, uprooting, walking away and being unhappy. It it feels shitty. It feels crappy (laughs) to leave, you know, when it was supposed to be a a good thing and it it didn't turn out not to be good, but to also be okay with how, like you said, how I showed up was, was a good, Yeah, I felt good with my choice and how I did it, even though I was sad that, I had to walk away. You know. Of course.
0: We're we're rooting for our parents. No one's like, "I hope you're an abusive asshole." Like we're <laughs> right. never that way. Like we want them to come through for us. And there's a primitive reason for that. Like needing caregivers is the reason why we're able to grow and evolve and be safe, right? And this is a really interesting parallel to people-pleasing that I'm I'm hoping this is insightful for people to, to understand truly people pleasing at its core has its origin in our primitive humanity. So if you're familiar with fight, flight, freeze, fawn responses, right? Fawn is a little bit of a newer concept, but essentially if you're thinking about it from a primitive standpoint, let's say you're about to be attacked by a mountain lion, you have options. You can fight, you can flee, you can freeze, play dead, Or you can fawn, you can placate, you can acquiesce, you can go here, kitty, kitty, go get that, oh, good kitty, right? So you're not necessarily standing up for yourself or, you know, you're trying to survive. And all of those primitive defense mechanisms have modern iterations. Fawning to stay safe has now morphed into people-pleasing. And we see this a lot in our childhoods, right? Like if you grew up with a volatile caregiver where you realized, ooh, I can fly under the radar if I'm flawless, if I'm perfect, if I'm a high achiever, I'm valedictorian, then they'll just focus on my siblings and I'm fine. Or maybe you learn to walk on eggshells. Maybe you learn to be very secretive and shut down all of your emotions. You decide to placate and people please and take care of, you know, this caregiver, or else there's going to be hell to pay. So we do that. And then what happens in the mind, we create a positive association with people-pleasing because it kept us safe. And then we get into these relationships in our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond. And we go, holy shit, I don't even know how to tell my partner what I need or that I'm really hurt by or offended by what my best friend just said or what somebody said in, in my workplace. And we go, oh... It. This is a scenario where it's not actually keeping me safe. It's hindering me.
1: Yeah. But
0: even if we look at like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, one of our primitive human needs is one of belonging. So no wonder we need mom and dad to take care of us or mom and mom or dad and dad or grandma and grandpa, whatever. No wonder we're wired for that for survival. That's why we compare ourselves to other people. We're constantly warding off threats so part of the reason why you adopted those people pleasing behaviors is just out of pure survival and i will add that it's still advantageous i think it's dangerous when we take any concept in personal development and we demonize it where we say perfectionism always wrong people pleasing always bad it's not if if i am going in for brain surgery i sure as fuck hope that Surgeon is a perfectionist, right? Right, right. I I need zero options of failure here. So, people pleasing is similar. If you are, you know, I, I'll just from personal experience, I'll say, I identify as queer. If I am in an environment where it's clearly hostile towards the LGBTQI plus community, then that's probably not my time to raise my rainbow flag and speak up for myself and be like, you know, Hey, we deserve rights, whatever. That's probably the time for me to be like, yeah, fuck them, uh, move away. Right. To yeah. stay safe, to stay yeah. safe. And that happens to a lot of marginalized communities, people of color, people in disabled bodies, people in fat bodies. I say that with the reclamation of the word fat, um, black and brown communities, there is a code switch, right? Like, Ooh, I need to do this to take care of myself. So I think it's important that we talk about this in this conversation, that it's not just some behavior that you just decided to do for the hell of it. It was for survival.
1: Yeah. That's huge. And that's I love that in the later years that they've added um the freeze and the fawn to it. Cause I was like, oh my God, I'm a fawn. Like I was never like a fight or flight necessarily. Um mm-hmm but it's, it's still, it's something heavily that I'm working through, but you're right. I never really thought of it. I guess I kind of have that the people pleasing aspect of me, the side of me that's, I don't like using the word manipulate, but it's like, I've gotten good at manipulating the situations around me. Uh, and it can, you're right. It can be a really, really beneficial skill to have, um, to make sure the situation is, is safe and is, um, welcoming or whatever we need it to be, but getting Mm. to that place, uh, takes so much work.
0: It does. Well, and the other thing is, is there's so much nuance. There's a different answer every time, right? So in that, the anecdote I just shared in that situation, the answer is to people please. So I can stay safe in another situation. If I'm not in danger at all, then it's about Contending with my inner critic, contending with some disempowering beliefs. Now we're calling in a different skill set. So, one of the best questions I think you can ask yourself when you are afraid of something afraid of speaking up, afraid of starting your own business, afraid of downsizing, moving, decluttering, letting go of family heirlooms, right? Like all of the things that we experience fear around asking yourself, Am I actually in danger? Or is this just new? Because your fear response will show up in both instances. Your fear response shows up if you're about to be harmed and it shows up if Susie in accounting doesn't like you or if your in-laws don't like you or if you want to start a new business and you're terrified. If it's new to speak up, if it's new to have a difficult conversation, it's going to register to your mind as danger. That's why we have to analyze it and go, am I in danger or is this just new? And most of the time it's just new.
1: Yeah. And it's such a huge, difficult thing. So I love that you found those words for it because, uh, that's something I always struggle with is how do you tell people, um, you know, that fear is a good thing because it's not always a good thing, you know, like following, I, I had a whole year of fear where I did things that I felt afraid to do, which meant like going to a conference in DC or, you know, taking that step in my business, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, how do you explain to people? And I recently heard someone say, and I'm kind of marinating in it because I literally just listened to someone say this yesterday, was that to tell the difference between, you know, or even like when we've got those, um, the, things going off in our brain saying like, this is data. You shouldn't do this. What are you doing? This is a terrible idea, but it is really something you want to do. Like, um, if it's moving, if it's downsizing my house, when I downsized, I was going, people are going to think you're crazy. People are going to think you're poor. People are going to think you can't, you know, all of these reasons why you shouldn't, but I felt the peace in my body knowing that I should. And it was my mind that was just going crazy. Yeah. So
0: this is a tricky one because what you're talking about is the dance between inner critic and intuition. And so intuitively, you have a gut message coming through to you saying, we need to do this. This is the right answer for us. So I will say that in a majority of the coaching circles and things that I've been a part of over the last two decades, this concept is one of the most difficult for people because we don't raise children in our culture to be intuitive or emotionally aware. What we teach them, it's changing now, which is making me so, so grateful. I don't want to be the one to do it, but I'm glad there are people doing it.
1: <laughs> um, I'm trying. So.
0: Yes, I, uh, I appreciate that so very much. But if you... You know, if you think about the messages that we received, and most of it is around logic, reason, rationale, which is housed in the conscious part of the mind, which is only like between five to 10% of the mind's power. A majority of what is running our show is 90 to 95% subconscious. That's where our beliefs, that's our emotions, that's our values, and that's all our primitive fight, flight, freeze responses. So we do oftentimes what I like to call the cognitive override, where instead of feeling genuinely into what's happening for us, we go, what makes logical sense? And what makes logical sense is oftentimes informed by beliefs you didn't consent to right it's yes. like okay what makes logical sense is that a woman needs to look this specific way everyone knows you have to be thin just look at how we treat people in fat bodies right everyone knows you need a perfect gorgeous kitchen you need oh we have to renovate that i didn't consent to those beliefs so of course there is conflict going on for you within that because we're not we're still in that environment. It's not gone. We see it in every social media feed. We see it on all commercials, right? Like, so it's an extra step of courage to hone your intuition. So as far as what that looks like, I think about feeling into the end result. So when you think about being in a smaller place, getting rid of all those boxes in the, garage, finally cleaning out underneath the sink. Oh my gosh, moving to that tiny, beautiful apartment. I don't have to do any landscaping. Oh my God. Like when you feel into what that end result reality would be, does it feel expansive or contractive? So if you, and people describe it in a lot of different ways, but it's sensory. It's sort of like a sixth sense and we all have it, but we've been kind of conditioned to not listen to it or not use it, but it's an unbelievable compass. But people will say sometimes, I think Martha Beck, who is a kind of a pioneer in coaching, talks about shackles on, shackles off. Do I feel bound and constricted by the idea of going after this thing? Or do I feel expansive? I have another colleague who calls it being scared sighted I'm scared yeah. and excited. I know that at the end of building this business, that is what I want, but I'm terrified of the path to get there. Okay. Then we know, yeah, no one's coming at you. You're not In a deep threat, right? And then sometimes it's so muddy we don't know and we just have to make a damn decision. Yeah. And we just go, you know what? I'm going to make a decision and then I'm giving myself the freedom to course correct if I need to. So that's, that is a, it is a tricky one. I'm not going to lie. But your inner critic is actually. A good thing. It really isn't necessarily a bad part of who we are. In fact, now, because my belief is so anchored into my own enoughness, my own value, belief that I can speak up for myself, if now I was to engage with someone else and they were like, oh, you're too outspoken, or oh, God, you cuss too much, my inner critic would be like, fuck off. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Because my inner critic is keeping those beliefs safe for me. No, no, Amy. No, that does not compute. That is not congruent with the beliefs that are held in this individual. Right. Right. So your inner critic is always just really just checking for congruency between the new messages you're receiving and what it already believes.
1: Yeah. So, yeah. No, that's awesome. And that I love that. And I'd love to hear if, if there was a process you went through or anything you recommend for people, because when I talk about minimalism, I I so badly tried to find the words because I'm like, I don't really actually care what your house looks like. I don't care about the aesthetic of your house. I don't care how you declutter. It's just a process of letting go. And for me, that continued on into my belief system where I started to go through those things and go, no, I don't care about that. Oh, that's not something I'm going to worry about. You know, Before I might've worried about having a really good butt that amount of time I spent Googling how to build a butt or how to shape your butt <laughs> or what to eat for your butt. You know, I like, and, and I, I just no longer, I unsubscribe. I'm not, I, I don't want to do that. That's not important. Of yes. The top priorities in my life, the shape of my butt <laughs> isn't on there anymore. And it was a matter of letting go. And so whenever I have those thoughts pop up of, uh, you know, Oh, she's got a nice, but I should, I should really be build mine. I was like, Oh no, remember, remember, you don't really care about that. So let's let it go. Right. Um, but I have so many people say to me where they believe that me specifically, it's easier. Well, I'm glad you could just let go of that. I'm yeah. glad you let go, you know, that type of thing. Uh, and it, it's been a process and I've had to let go more and more, but I'm wondering if there's something you have for those people who are maybe a little bit more in their head who struggle. To let go of those beliefs, how do you begin to kind of let them go? Yeah.
0: Well, so I love that you brought this up. I call that feeling uniquely broken. Oh, it can work for Renee. It can work for Amy. Oh, but you have no idea how bad I am, how broken I am. It doesn't apply to me. And I always like to say you are not exempt from science. It's all science. It's, it's, it is not something that you can necessarily opt out of. But doing something about it, it, you are going to be uncomfortable. You are going to be uncomfortable. The way that the brain works and the way the mind works. If we have made a positive association with clutter, let's say, or maximalism, it's going to take a lot of work for us to change that belief. And you can change the belief in a handful of different ways. But one of the things that I was thinking about this particular challenge is to ask yourself, what would 80 year old, 85, 90 year old Renee say to you about this shoebox full of greeting cards from my last workplace? that they all gave me birthday cards and I just have it. Like, what would 90 year old Renee say? Would she be like, yeah, I better keep it. No, she's going to say, no, have more time with your kids. Go spend time with your family. Feel the wind on your face. Enjoy the ocean or the mountains. or We don't get to the end and go, and we can't take any of it with us. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but I also don't think It's helpful to shame people out of things that bring them enjoyment. So I think it's about discerning, am I dependent? Do I feel like my happiness is contingent on having this thing? Or do I look at that thing and go, it adds to my life? That's a very different come from. So asking your, your elder, wiser self, How much do I want to stay attached to this belief that I need this thing or this belief that I'm not enough or I can't be vocal? One of my other favorite tools that I think could be helpful for people, I call it Find My Truth. It's an acronym, F-M-T. The F stands for what are the facts of the situation? So the facts are, I have this much in my closet. I have... These many pairs of shoes, um, that was an heirloom, right? We can fact it up. The M stands for what am I making that mean? What am I making that mean? That my love is tethered to an item? I feel fortunate that my spiritual belief allow me to connect with people beyond the grave. Like, I'd rather do that. I'd rather see them send me little signs, you know? And of course, it's great to have little sentimental things, but we don't need to have boxes and boxes and boxes so we can't even park our car in the garage, right? M stands for what am I making up? And the T stands for what is the truth? And the truth is your decision. And sometimes you have to analyze what is someone else's truth and what is true for Renee, what is true for Amy. So you can apply this to any situation. It doesn't even have to be about unstuffing necessarily. It could be that you want to start your own business. And the facts are, you've never done it before. You're changing career paths altogether. Um, The facts are, we're living in a time where you can Google the hell out of any of that stuff and find great people to help you. The facts are, I'm feeling terrified. I'm feeling some emotional sense of fear. What am I making up? I'm making up that that fear means I can't do it. I'm making up that I won't have support from anybody or that I can't garner my own support, right? And then what's the truth? The truth is I'm embarking on something scary. The truth is I'm doing something I've never done before and it makes a lot of sense that I would be scared. But I'm also capable, right? And then you might have to say, my mom's truth is it's a bad decision, but that's not mine. Right. Right. So in certain scenarios, you might have to analyze someone else's truth versus yours. But again, those are just beliefs. That's it. It's a feeling of certainty. So find my truth FMT. What are the facts? What am I making up? What is the truth?
1: Oh, I love that. That's such a simple, but really effective process. Uh, And those are things, you know, I struggle because that sounds really similar to what I've had. Like when I went through the process of decluttering photos, like you said, of, of old loved ones, people, well, they are ready to throw stones. If you tell them you decluttered pictures, yeah. uh, it's some, something that's a hot button topic for just about everyone. You know, I've had family members, like, how could you do that? And when I've shared it on social media, people were like, terrible. You're so awful. I can't believe you wouldn't do that to your family. Uh, but it was very much that. What, what are the facts? This is a photo. You know an old picture the thing i could tell myself or the thing a lot of people tell myself or that i did for years was that letting go of a picture was letting go of that person again or or letting go of that memory and in reality the truth is it's a piece of paper with some colors slapped on it this isn't my loved ones this isn't the moment this isn't the memory um none of that can be taken from me or change you know changed more than it already has yes A couple of things here that I want to touch
0: on that I think are really important. What you're referring to is symbolism. So when we wear a wedding ring or we don't, like it's just a symbol. It doesn't make the marriage. It doesn't help you communicate. It doesn't help you organize your finances. It doesn't give you better sex. It's none of that. It's an emblem. That's it the relationship, the marriage stands outside of that symbol 110%, meaning it can exist without the symbol. Same is true for a photograph. It is symbolic of something that was real. And then it you have to decide, do I need that emblem or that symbol around me? Or do I need 5,000 of those symbols around me? When what might be really good for me is just to sit and meditate and think about the good times, right? Or watch a video of us or something like that. But I think we have to be careful with what we how we assign value to things, right? And we can't talk about that unless we talk about capitalism, commercialism, who benefits from us buying stuff, who benefits from you thinking your butt needs to be a different way. Who benefits from you thinking that you need to not have hair on your body, for God's sake? Like, women have fucking hair. Like, but there are very, very lucrative businesses that are made based off of us buying into beliefs, yet again, that we did not consent to. We didn't necessarily consent to be in a capitalist society that highly values commercialism, productivity, and spending, right? for minimalist culture, that is a capitalist nightmare, right? So of course, we are once again ingrained to believe that our things are of much more greater importance. And this was something that happened hugely in our culture after the Second World War. That's when we were going, oh, we need to make sure that women stay home because they liked having these jobs way too fucking much. So let's show them in these perfectly coiffed outfits why they need to buy this brand new stove and this new blender and this new this. and Buy, 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 consume, 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 and then attach meaning to it. So I think we just have to be careful about, again, am I operating under this from a belief system that I co-signed on or not
1: yeah and then make some different decisions oh that's amazing I love this conversation I just want to marinate in it all day (laughs) I know we're kind of dwindling down but thank you so much for that because you're you're so right um and I know I I feel like I can just keep going on and on for like the next hour and a half but (laughs) Uh, but I'm so thankful that we were able to Go through all of these things, because I think a lot of times people don't maybe see how the dots connect from people pleasing to the stuff and the symbol the symbols that we give to our items. That's so amazing. Um, so if anyone wants to continue to keep connecting with you, where can they find you and how can they do that? Yeah. So
0: my corner of the Internet is over at amygreensmith.com. And I like to say all those names are spelled like the basic bitch way. <laughs>
1: And nothing exciting. Summarizes it well.
0: <laughs> Amy Green Smith. And you'll see over there that I've got tons of freebies. I've got some free hypnosis tracks for you. I'm a hypnotherapist as well. I have a free workbook for you. I have my own back catalog of almost 500 podcast episodes because I've been doing it for 10 years. And so lots of great ways, freebies for you to get involved. And like any self-respecting Gen Xer, I hang out the most on Instagram and my handle is Hey Amy Green Smith and you can find me pretty much on all socials under that same handle. But right now, I'm not sure when you're going to be sharing this, but through the month of September, I have applications open for a Very intense immersion that I take a small, small group of women through, and it's called Worthy. It's nine months. It's a deep dive. It's no joke. And it also includes two in-person retreats, Uh, one that will be domestically here in the States at a gorgeous lakeside estate, and one that will be at a beautiful beach resort in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. And um, so, yeah, if you're like, I'm done. I need a deep dive. I'm ready to go all in. Check out Worthy. And if not, check out all my other freebies and come hang out.
1: Great. Thank you so much. That sounds amazing. Awesome. Thank you so Thanks much for right. hanging out today, Amy. Oh, it was a blast. Hey again. Thanks so much for hanging out with me today on the Unstuffed Podcast. It means so much that you chose to carve out some of your precious time just to hang out with me. If you aren't quite ready for our time to end, head to the show notes where you can grab my free declutter checklist, join my newsletter subscription, and connect with me on some of your favorite social platforms. Sending you so much love. Until next time.